Welcome back to another episode of People or Product. My name is George Brooks. And on today's episode, I got the pleasure to talk to Marty Kagan. Marty's a partner at Silicon Valley Product Group, but previously was an uh, engineer at HP Labs, a VP at product at Netscape, a senior vice president of product and design at eBay. He's done it all. And to add to that, he's written two books, one called Inspired, How to Create Tech Products Customers Love. And then more recently in 2021, he's launched Empowered, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Products. We talked about a lot because he has covered a lot in his journey and in, uh, in his books. But I think that the key takeaways that I heard today were really focusing on the difference between customer problems and business problems and how truly empowered teams really focus in on to moving the needle of those business problems, not just building the features that the stakeholders want or the boss wants. And then finally, how to actually lead with context and not control. I think you're going to love this conversation. So let's jump right in. Marty, thanks so much for for joining us today. Um, I thought I'd throw it straight to you. I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. Uh, so tell me a bit about how you got into this crazy world of product and uh, kind of where you are now. Sure, George. Uh, yeah, well, it's been a long journey. I've been doing it literally since right out of college. Um, and I've worked exclusively on tech product companies the whole time, which is, yeah, very awesome. long. Love it. <laughs> very it. long. Uh, I started for the first 10 years as a developer. Uh, and that's what I studied in school was computer science. And uh, lots of product people obviously got into it from that path. Uh, there's lots of paths to take you there. But, you know, sort of the cl- I was the classic, um, finally sort of several years into writing software, finally asked the question, who decide we should build this product and how mm-hmm. did they decide we should build this product sort of you take your head out from uh you know heads down just sort of focused on engineering and you realize well there's there's a lot of other decisions in play and i want to understand more of that and so um i wasn't willing to let go of the engineering for several years but i was very i, I did work hard to learn the product side and there was uh, some people that were fabulous that coached me on that. And then um, ever since I've been interested, I, in fact, I'm, I'm most interested in product teams. That's always been my favorite topic, product teams. How do designers and engineers and product managers work together to solve hard problems? That's kind of, to me, the most fun part of our industry. And um, yeah, my favorite thing to do. So everything I sort of focus on is around that. I, I write mostly about product management and product leadership because those are usually the weakest areas, not mm. because I'm not interested in the others. It's just that product uh, design and engineering have, there's a lot of great stuff that's been written. There's a lot of thought leaders in that. I feel like I have very little to add on that side, but on the product management side especially there's just not nearly as much uh written about that and and i think a lot of the stuff that is written about it seems to be describing a world that's very different than what i see in the best product companies and so i'm like well i'm going to write about that 
I, I couldn't agree more. There was a tweet that I saw a while back from uh, somebody who I think was, had come out of one of the big global consultants, right? And uh, his, his point was, I'm, I'll get it wrong, but the, the general idea was, why is it that consultants keep talking about this idealistic archetypal world? As if like, let me tell you what it perfectly looks like, but is never the reality. You know, um, I guess maybe that kind of leads us a little bit into, you know, you've written three books. Um, the original inspired, I think was back in 2008. Is that right? Right. Okay. And then a rewrite, an, an updated version of that in 2018. So you had a, a good 10 year, um, a span of time to learn more and think more things. Um, and I've read uh, that one and I really enjoyed inspired, but then you just recently released your newest book empowered. So tell me a little bit about that process of getting to this newest book empowered and kind of what's the, what's the thesis? What's your position here? Sure. Well, in truth, when I wrote the first edition of Inspired, the product industry was so much smaller, too. It was mm -hmm. just 2008. Yeah. Yeah. 2008. It was so much smaller. I felt like I almost knew the whole community. And um, and over those 10 years, you know, it just exploded. And a lot mm -hmm. of the technologies that I was just introducing in 2008, things like lean startup technologies, agile technologies, were like, yeah, we've been doing this for five years. So yeah, um, the context really did change. And one of the things that happened, in truth, the first edition didn't really get very far out of the Silicon Valley bubble. It was mostly read there and that sure. was my world. But with the second edition, you know, tech, tech had spread to the world. I mean, everywhere, everywhere. And everywhere. Which, which for me is cool because I like meeting teams in different parts of the world. I like to understand the cultural differences. I like to understand their, uh, you know, how they view the role of product. It's just interesting. But anyway, what happened with the second edition is it just spread way beyond what I uh, expected or had seen before. And one of the things that caught me by surprise was that, you know, in, in Inspired, it really talks about how product teams solve hard problems yeah. in ways customers love, work for the business. That's the essence of good product. But what I started to hear from teams all over in places, they'd say, we want to work this way. We understand it. We see the value, but they would say, but our management won't let us uh -huh. literally. I mean, we I hear, hear that, that won't let us. Yeah. And I'm like, what do you mean? They won't let you, they, you mean they won't let you work like Amazon works. They don't want to make as much money as Amazon makes. I mean, right. I don't get that. And so I started talking more to these leaders and the CEOs and understanding what was different. And I realized it wasn't just the practices of good teams. Also, we needed to share the practices of leaders mm. because these leaders were really the problem and they really are the problem. And I, I, I don't mean intentionally, of course, most of them have never, ever seen what good looks like. Yeah. They've never yeah. worked at a good product company. They've never seen those teams. They're like, what the heck? You know, all they know is what they learned in some old financial institution or yeah, old the business, the business school didn't teach it this way, right? No, that's exactly right. A lot of them, that's where they think they learned it in an MBA program, which of course is so not really what we do. No, true. And so I realized, well, I, we need to share the techniques, not just of the teams, but also of the leaders. And so that became, that was like literally three years ago, I kind of had that realization. And then I started on um, 
you know, it's a long process to write a book and oh. a lot of work. And so um, it finally came out a couple months ago. So I'm glad that and, and that's really the difference. Empowered is for leaders and yeah. inspired is for teams. I I resonate so much with this. I mean, I, I own a small product development firm. That's that's what I do. So I'm I'm kind of a leader in this space, although we are also working with organizations that are doing this work. But which I'll I'll get to later because I have some questions about how you view working with outside teams. Mm-hmm. But um, I really want to think about the fact that this is this is not a small book. This is there is a lot in this, and you can tell you've taken the time to really think through it because when you're talking about product teams, product leadership, it's complex. There's there's a lot to cover there that is really difficult to put in a book rather than maybe sitting down and trying to walk a leader through it. Um, but I get, I guess let's get to the basic question. What is an empowered team? Yeah. And you're right, by the way, it is, I mean, I had spent 15 years walking people through it, but Mm -hmm. it's hard, much harder to write about it in a general way. And, uh, and yes, it starts with that foundation, which is really the difference between, um, a feature team basically just there to implement features on a roadmap, which is what most product companies, you know, that are not following best practices do. Yep. And then an empowered product team, which is just the term I use for how the teams are set up at the best product companies. Um, that, you know, there isn't really a label out there. Spotify calls them squads, but the truth is squads applies to both kinds of teams. Yeah, because they're um, still working cross-functional a lot of times, but that's maybe right. not in an empowered way. So how do, I, how do I mean, you define that as being uh, different? Yeah, because you're right. They look the same. They have a product manager, a designer, and a, mm-hmm. somewhere between two and 10 engineers. That's a typical product yep. team or squad. But where it gets different is if you look inside and you see. So the first difference is, are they given? Well, the first difference is really their purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a feature mm-hmm. team, they are literally there to serve the business. In an empowered product team, they are there to serve customers in ways that work for the business. And that that might sound like just a little phrase, but that is uh, everything fo- follows from that. It is a fundamental difference. But literally, in most feature team companies, they will tell they will literally think of the customer the stakeholder as the customer instead of the real customer. And we're like, no, that is not true. Stakeholders, you don't ignore them, but they are your partners. You're collaborating with them, but the purpose is to serve customers. And that's another, that's like such a striking difference between say a team at Amazon or a team at Netflix and a team in uh, you know some big bank somewhere. Mm-hmm. That is very fundamental difference. So just their, their purpose, their reason for existing is different. And then how that plays out lots of ways. The first way it plays out is if it's a feature team, just building features on a roadmap for, for a bunch of stakeholders, then they're given features and projects to build. It's all output. It's like, yep. do this. It's yep. really just about keep how making. fast you can do it. Yep. How many lines of code can you write? How many features can you ship? That's right. And of course, if it doesn't solve underlying problems, whose fault is that? You can't mm-hmm. hold the team accountable because they didn't decide those things. They were doing what so they were told. Yeah. You get a lot of feature finger pointing. And frankly, it's not hard to understand why only 20% or so of the things teams build and feature teams actually move the needle. So in an empowered product team, on the other hand, it's actually much harder assignment. Instead of being given features to build, which is essentially 
you're being told the solution, you're given problems to solve, customer problems, business problems, sometimes both. Uh, and you're told, look, you've got the, you're working with the technology, you're talking to our customers every week, you should be in the best position to figure out the best way to solve this. Mm -hmm. So if you're in an empowered team, you are, and that's literally what it means to be empowered. You have, you are allowed to figure out the best way to solve the problem the company needs you to solve. So leadership's not responsible to hand you the solution to say, hey, here's the idea that we came up with in a boardroom someplace and please go build this thing because we know everything and um, you are only hands. You're actually saying it, you're moving that decision-making power, that ability to, to have influence, to, to move the needle further down to the teams that are actually writing the code, designing the screens. That is exactly right. In fact, um, at Netflix, they have a, a phrase for this, which is really a mantra through the company, which is lead with context, not control. Mm. In other words, don't tell your teams what to do. Tell them the context. Tell them what you need them to accomplish, what the strategy is, what the business constraints are, what the, what the relationships are with partners, and then let the teams figure it out. Um, it's just... This is probably the fundamental principle. And, you know, the part that really is critical out of all this, I mean, there's some obvious benefits like motivation, oh, things yeah. like that. Yeah. But the thing that people, I really want them to understand, and at the very end of Empowered, I want because I threw so much in that book. I mean, there's a 400 a pages, there's a lot in there. But I wanted people, the most important thing, I titled the section, the most important thing is this, which is, if your company depends on innovation, that will almost always come from the engineers on the team. Doesn't mm -hmm. come from customers, doesn't come from the executives, doesn't even come from the product manager or designer most of the time. It comes from the engineers. And unless the engineers are able to contribute to what the solution is, not just how to code it, innovation just doesn't happen. And so would, that's I would the make the argument reason. that what company isn't and shouldn't be innovating right now. I mean, well, like I know it's, it's you either realize that or you're on a slow death path. Probably right. you become right. irrelevant and obsolete very quickly. Um, um, okay. But you know, so, George, every company says that, right. But how many of them actually treat their engineers the way they need to, if they're going to so get true. this engineer, this innovation, it takes a level of intentionality that is really uncomfortable. Um, I think at least when, when the, you know, the clients that we work with or even ourselves, in order to, to, to say, I trust you, I, I, I'm, I'm going to give you the context. I'm going to make it cl as clear as possible what we think a problem might be. And, and even you're probably going to see problems that we don't see, but I have to let go. That's a really scary place to be as a leader, I think. It is. And it's actually much harder to be a leader in an empowered organization than it is in a command and control organization. It's much easier just to say, here's the features that the team wants. In fact, some companies are so bad. What they do is they just let the stakeholders fight it out. They let them vote on what yeah. features they want. They're like, whatever, we'll build whatever crap you want. You know, just tell us. And yeah, it's your problem. We're just here to build. So you took a, you took a big, big portion of this book and dedicated it towards coaching. 
tell, tell me why so much of the book is dedicated towards coaching. And maybe it's kind of getting at what we're talking about here of how the difficulty of actually doing this. What does that look like? Yeah, it is. In fact, that's the biggest single topic in the whole book. It's, and it's, I would argue, the most important. Um, partly it ties right back to this concept of lead with context, not control. When you're coaching, you're providing that context. You're not telling them how to do their job, but you're showing them, okay, here's what you need to understand about uh, the legal constraints here, or here's what you need to understand about the decision process for this particular issue, whatever it is. Um, so that's a big role, but also it, it gets back to this point that people aren't born knowing how to be good product people. So you know, true. Good engineers, good designers, good product. They're just not, it's, and it's really not taught in uh, academic programs. No, there's some exceptions with engineers and with designers, but with product managers, definitely not taught. So coaching is really how we teach this. Mm -hmm. This is how this knowledge moves from strong leaders to strong people, which make strong teams. And that's really, um, in fact, that's how. That's how I learned this stuff was managers that took the time to coach me. I didn't yeah. even realize at the time how lucky I was, but uh, I mentioned I started my first career as a developer and that was at HP Labs. And for, for the full 10 years, every single day, there was at least one manager assigned to help me get better at my job. And I thought that was normal because <laughs> I didn't had never worked anywhere else. What a gift. It is a gift. And of course, um, you talk to teams at Google, you talk to, that's yeah. what they're, that's what makes the machine work. They, tr they treat it as a major responsibility. And it is, a, and then the output or the outcome instead of output, the outcome, it, it is truly where innovation starts to happen. People feel empowered. They feel confident to be able to take on these challenges in a way that the person that was just uh, spoon fed, right. Right. Um, doesn't ever have to pick it up and, and carry the load. They don't ever have to learn what that muscle feels like. Um, I think that's a really, I mean, I, I'm always been a big fan of Google's apprenticeship program for product managers, which really ended up spinning out some of the top, you know, yeah. CEOs in Silicon Valley. Um, and it was really about product people. Um, okay. So I want to, I want to take us um, kind of onto the next thing. This makes sense for me. I think it's, it's, it's much easier when you have a small organization or a startup, right? Because you're in that, the early stages of, of really forming the norms and the processes and the defaults and the roles of your organization. People wearing lots of hats because so everybody has to lift things up. They all have to pick things up. What does it look like when you step into a larger organization that has established hierarchies, has established norms, and you start having this conversation about like, here's what it's actually going to take for you to change, to, to yeah. actually work this way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it really gets to their origin story. Um, if the people that started that company came from a strong product company, then almost certainly they've instituted this culture from the beginning. Right, right. And, uh, and it grows, obviously, if you look at Amazon, if you look at, I mean, look at Apple. These companies are 30 years old. Google, yeah. they, they've been able, because it, they really started with that. Uh, and of course, many companies started way before this. And they did not have this way of working. Yeah. And they fundamentally have to transform if they want to compete, um, especially when one of the major companies decides to go after them. 
now, unfortunately, one of the problems, this is an anti-pattern, and this one really frustrates me, but I have met many very strong startup growth stage companies yeah. that were founded by people that totally get this, and they've built this great start to a company, and then they get some big funding. And then their board tries to get them to take on a CEO that's like a professional manager. <laughs> and yeah. it literally, I see them go from great to terrible. Oh, no. And it's not because, uh, you know, a lot of times by the time it happens, they didn't even realize what was going yeah. on. But yeah. what happened was that leader that they brought in wasn't from Amazon. Mm -hmm. They were from they were often from some marquee name, but not in tech. Right. And the result is they have no idea what we're talking about. They're used to seeing command and control. And, you know, you start to see the good people leave. You start to see motivation go down and you see innovation come to a grinding halt. So I really hate that anti-pattern because it's such a shame. And so many people don't realize what they're starting in motion when they, um, when they make that higher. But uh, to your question, one way or another, however it got there, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time with the senior leaders about, okay, if you really wanna transform, we need to talk about all the work that's in front of you because it's hard. Yeah. Because it, you know the techniques are not what's hard, it's the cultural change. Yeah, because it's not gonna be just simply saying, put process in place. It's gonna be literally think a different way. It is. And a lot of time it means remove process that they have mm -hmm. in place too. Yeah, right. Because they're over-processed. Well, you'd actually, you only spend a, a short a bit of time on the book. It's mentioned throughout, but there's a, there's one chapter that's around accountability. Sure. And I don't want to park there for just a second because I know a lot of leaders and even we experience this. We're, we have an incredibly autonomous product managers and product teams, and they are empowered to do a lot of the work that they want to do. But then there's this question of where and how, how do you keep people accountable and what are you keeping them accountable to? Right. How do you think about accountability in a, a power team? Sure. Well, um, you're going to see what makes this tricky is it gets very related to culture yeah. uh, and, and what kind of culture the leaders want to really instill in the company. But a big purpose, a big aspect of empowered teams is accountability. You can't, because every CEO I know, one of the frustrations they have with feature teams is there's no way to hold them accountable yeah, because right. they didn't they didn't choose or even have a say in what they're doing. Right. So you can you can say, well, you're too slow or your designs are bad or whatever, but it's just finger pointing. There's mm -hmm. no real accountability. And because you can go to the stakeholder that requested the feature, but then they say, well, but the team did a bad job do it. So who's wrong? And anyway, it's just a uh, uh, goes nowhere fast. But on an empowered team, you're able to say, all right, here's the problem. You, the way it works is the leaders are they are able to say this is the problem we need you to solve. The team has to look at that problem and then come back and say what they think they can do. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I mean, I mean, that's just a basic of empowerment, yeah. right? That you, yeah. if you tell them, oh, here's the problem, and I need you to get our churn rate from 6% to 2% by the end of the quarter, you know, right. they're just going to say, well, we're just being set up to fail. Yeah. So 
um, they need to be able to look at it and say, you know, in this quarter, we think we can get it from 6% to 5%, something like that. Now, the leaders also have to tell the team how aggressive they want them to be. How do they want them to go big, like mm. a 10x improvement, or do they want them to be conservative and say, just low-lying fruit, we'll be very happy with a 10% boost. Yeah, that's, uh, that's part of the context, actually, that the team needs. But let's say that the team is told by the leaders, look, we just need to be able to count on 10% here. If you're confident we can do that, we'll be thrilled. But then let's say the team, they're con- they say they're confident, but at the end of the quarter, they haven't done it. That's where you have an accountability discussion. Now, there are different ways. I know companies that address this. Some of them, it's like very, uh, and I want to be clear, this is very, this is not common, but there are some companies that are pretty brutal on accountability. Yeah, yeah of course. On the other hand, most of them, I think, are too lax. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, like we didn't really need to hit that thing that we were trying to go after. It's anyways. like, I'm yeah. sure you did your best. It's like, no. Um, to me, I like to treat it like a site outage. If we have a site outage, we all, it's all hands on deck. We fix mm-hmm. the issue. And then we have a postmortem. Right. Where we're not trying to blame. What we're trying to do is figure out what went wrong so that we can avoid it going forward. Yeah. I like to do the same exact thing when somebody misses on their commitments. Uh, I like to say, let's get you together with some peers, uh, especially peers that were depending on you. Mm-hmm. And let's you tell us. So you said that you were very confident you would get a 10% improvement. What happened? And a lot of times they'll say, well, we ran into an obstacle. And, and then they'll say, well, why didn't you tell us we could have helped? Right. <laughs> or right. maybe if Was you would have let us know. even important? I yeah. know. It's like, we, that's what usually happens. You know, something happens and they don't raise the flag early enough, but whatever. The point is the teams can kind of look at that together and say, all right, well, if that starts to happen again, what do we need to do? One of the most common things I've found is that teams are not on top of their progress. They, Mm -hmm. they need to be tracking that progress every week. If you wait a month, things get out of hand too fast. So, um, you know, life happens. That's normal (laughs) for every team. There's always stuff that comes up, but it's really about how you deal with that. But this is what this is what I argue is best practice for accountability. It's in between. It's not nothing and Mm -hmm. it's not termination. (laughs) It's like, let's learn and how to do this better. I was listening to another leader and what he was talking about is that what he measures things on and it was, it's what you were talking about based on their culture. Now they have an incredibly innovative culture. They were, they were basically kept accountable to how much they were willing to experiment, to try the, the level of effort to actually try to move the needle. It was the people that didn't stay at the company. And we've even talked about this at Crema is you, you don't really belong at Crema if you aren't willing to put in the effort to grow and learn and constantly improve. If you don't want to constantly improve, then there are places that you can go check in from eight to five and, and get your paycheck and go home. And that's totally fine. But if you want to grow and learn and, and adapt and become something bigger and actually solve some really cool problems together, 
then a place like Grima or a, a place like an empowered product team is a great place for you. So that's more so what we keep people accountable to is their willingness to actually step up and try something. Um, it's when they stop trying and then start pointing that that's when we usually, like you said, you go, wait a minute, this, you know, you know what we're here to do. Right. Um, so it, I love that, that space between. It might be worth um, mentioning because this is a, a common topic. Um, I want to draw the distinction here between coaching and accountability. Mm, yeah. So what you're describing, making sure that the person understands that it's part of their job to constantly push themselves to, and you know, one of the ways we describe what you said is you want people to think like owners, not like employees. Exactly. Um, this is all good, but you heard, you know, one of the big purposes, maybe the biggest of an empowered product team is accountable to outcomes. Yeah. And trying is not an outcome. Oh, good. That's, good word. That's considered a vanity metric. Yeah. So I know teams that propose to me, it's like, we're becoming an empowered product team. Our objective is 25 iterations per week in discovery. Uh, that's and just I'm movement. Like, that's just activity. That's, that's right. It's activity. Now, their argument is, but that's activity showing that we're trying. Mm. Right. And yeah. I agree. I Part of me is like, awesome. Fit it's 25 iterations a week. Yeah. That's what yeah. we want. Yeah. But the other part of me is you can do a hundred iterations a week yeah. and still be terrible. Yeah. So if we are about results, about outcomes, then we need to separate those things we do to improve ourselves from ultimately what we're accountable to, which is business results. That's really good. Uh, and that's, again, we come back to this is both complex and, and hard. This, that's, that is hard to live in that balance. Um, one of the things that we talk a lot about is that nothing is really black and white, right? Everything's kind of on a spectrum of, of growth, of learning, of, of trying and actually producing. Um, so I think that that's another example of, Hey, it's great that you've got a hundred iterations. It's nothing less than that, but it also has to be, you know, where are you, where are we actually seeing those results? What, when you've been talking to people about this idea of empowered teams, what's the biggest, the biggest pushback you get or or maybe the biggest challenge that people have moving into, you know, actually working as a truly empowered team. Yeah. And I, I do see this. I am, um, cause I am often in two different worlds. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, I meet people in some of these old companies and they, they read about what an empowered team is like. They hear about it. They hear the stories. They see the case studies. And they're like, I don't believe this even exists. You know, it's mythical. <laughs> and, and, I'm, and then it's funny because like just in fact, just last week, I was talking to two different people in San Francisco that are, you know, very accomplished product people. And they were at both independently asking me, because they had heard about how some of these teams work that I'm alluding to now. Yeah, right. And they were like, is that for real? Do they really work that way? What is the matter with them? How could they work in a place like that? 
And, and I'm, of course, putting myself, you know, I, I understand where they're coming from because sure. I was there too in the yeah. past, but I see both worlds. And the, the thing that's funny is I can understand how both of them could doubt the existence of the other. Um, but the truth is they both exist. They yeah. really do. And, and they're not secrets either. They really no. aren't secrets. They're well documented. It's just um, a lot of people have never had the opportunity to go witness the other mm -hmm. one. And so until you've tried it, uh, yeah. The thing that I don't understand really if I step way back is just looking at it from the profit motive. Right. All the most successful and valuable companies in the world are working the way that, and they remarkably same way for what each other. other data do you need? I know it's like, what, is that not enough to motivate you to at least try? Right. Right. <laughs> but you know, people are always scared of what they don't know, right? The devil, you so know, true. the devil, you don't, they complain about how awful the technology investments are, but they don't necessarily want to change because they're scared. Well, going back to something we talked about at the beginning, where you said that it can, the appearance can look very similar, right? So again, if, if you're purely just saying, well, I put cross-functional teams together, why aren't they acting like an empowered team? The, the difference of intentionality about how you're coaching these people, how you're actually um, giving autonomy to them, how you're positioning the context correctly versus just saying, build the thing I want and I've put you, I've, I've ordered you correctly. I think there's a lot of um, uh, bait and switch, especially in recruiting. So, so that's something we hear a lot is that somebody will come, we're, we're in a hiring mode right now, which is um, both hard and good. Mm -hmm. And um, we're just getting to that point where about, we're about 50 people. So the culture is changing as we're growing. And one of the things that we, we hear a lot is, is it really like your website says? Is it really like the job description says? Is it really like the, your YouTube videos look like? And it, it is really hard to convince somebody, yes, we actually practice what we preach, but you won't know it until you experience it. And we had a developer that started, this has been a couple of years ago, and he came to me and he goes, this is actually a terrible analogy, he goes, I'm kind of like a beaten dog, like a, a, a dog that I gotten from the shelter that, you know what, I can be the sweetest dog in the world and I can do things the right way. But I've just been taught for a long time that everybody would tell me they were gonna be nice to me. Everybody told me they were gonna empower me, but they never did. And, and so it's, he said, it took me, George, it took me six months before I realized you actually do this. And I think that that happens a lot, right? I mean, you probably see that on a regular basis. There's a lot of the bait and switch and people joining teams that were promised oh. that. Absolutely. And it's not some, you know, it's not hard for everybody to say things like we care about our customers and we're, it's just, you know, it's just words. We hear it all yeah. the time. Um, yeah. I think people are getting better at figuring out what to ask, who to talk yeah. to yeah. Um, so that they can figure these out. I'm asked this was probably the single most common question I get is when I interview for a job, how do I tell if this is a company that's really going to value what I can do, or if it's just, they want another, uh, you know, cog in a wheel. Yep. Yep. And that, that's, I think you're getting back to where are people, where are people going to have the opportunity to flourish? Um, I think that's truly the, the thing that people are, that's what they want. And then I, I recently um, put out a thing that said, you, you with the 18 to 24 months turnaround time or tenure, 
um, in organizations, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, no one, I don't know who wrote that rule, but, but if somebody, if somebody says, no, you just expect 18 to 24 months, then you're probably running teams where people don't want to work and they're probably not being empowered. Yeah. That there's that old saying, which is so true that you join a company, but you leave a manager. That's right. And that's what's really, in most of the time, that's what's going on. Their manager is doing nothing to help them develop in their career. They're not providing them what they kind of implied during the yep. interview. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, classic. Okay. Well, I want to take it to something that's a little selfish. We're, and we're, we'll wrap up with this being kind of one of the last questions, and then we'll, I'll throw it to you. But I want to take it to something that's a little bit selfish because we're, we're an agency, right? We're a, we're a product firm. And... Over the years, we've tried to ask this question, like, why would you work with an agency? Why why, should you even work with an agency? I mean, I I respect the question. In your book, you you mentioned a couple of times that working with agencies is is really risky for it just being, well, great, that's your mercenary. That's your your feature team. But just understand you got to treat them that way. I'm curious, and I want honesty. What do you think about agencies, product firms, outsourced resources, that model, what does that look like when you're trying to create an empowered environment? Yeah, well, it's a totally fair question. Um, But let's talk about it from two different sides. Yeah, Um, we'll talk about it from your side, in other words, the agency and but let's first talk about it from your client. Yep. From your client. So the, the most important thing I try to tell the clients, which is who I work with, obviously. Yeah, of course. I, I work yeah. with the clients. Uh, but I tell them, look, first thing you need to decide, are we talking a core competency of your company here or are we talking something extra? Mm-hmm. If your company is about X, but you need just a brochure website or you need a little utility or something like that, It's not even the best use of your people to be doing that, right? That's what agencies are for. Sure. Um, This is what really made Accenture Accenture, right? They took all that stuff from all the big companies. And you know what? They got very good at delivering that stuff. Um, Where companies get into trouble is if they use, I'll use Accenture, you know, because they're the biggest. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, uh, They've bought every they, other agency, so that's right. <laughs> but, you know, they, they get into trouble using Accenture when they're trying to build their core of mm. their business because now it's a very different situation. Now, so, for example, would Tesla ever use Accenture to build the software for controlling a car or autonomous driving? No, they're going to hire a bunch of engineers, bunch of designers. Yeah, because this is the core competency. This is the core of what makes a Tesla amazing, Mm. Uh, where Boeing got into trouble with the 737 mask uh, max is they forgot that basic rule and they took flight control software, probably nothing more important to a commercial airliner Mm. than flight control software. And they used an agency for that. Right. And of course, I, I think last thought, thing I saw, 400 people had died. So, I mean, I don't know. It's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. And that's criminal. And it's not because of the agency. Yeah. That's Boeing's screw up. Yep. Right. They should have never done that. They should have had a team 100% focused on the safest, most fuel efficient flight control software in the world. 
Absolutely. I mean, who should have had that? Dedicated to thinking only about that all the time. And constantly improving it, just like Tesla does. Right. uh, For example, for their their software. So that's the client side. Yeah. And if you really want innovation, not only do you need those those engineers the way we talked about, but those engineers need time to really go deep. So the worst thing in the world from the client's point of view is every six months you get new people, mm-hmm. which as you know, if you use an agency like in India or China, it's like you're lucky if you get them for six months. Oh, if that, yeah. So your chance of innovation, your chance of any sense of empowerment, in fact, even you're, you'd be lucky if you even had a decent feature team out of that. It's much more likely going to be run like what we call a delivery team, which is even worse than what we've been talking about. So that's why I try to tell um, uh, the clients that, look, if this is the core of your business, you need to go all in. Mm -hmm. You need to build these competencies yourself. Uh, And one of the common things I hear, but we don't have people that know that technology. Your engineers want to learn this technology. You need people to learn that. So step up. Now, what of course is going on, really what's going on in those companies is those clients don't understand the role technology needs to play. They think of it like a cost center. Mm -hmm. And because they think of it as a cost center, they say, well, you know what? A loaded cost is $100,000 for one of these developers. I just outsource that. That's how they view it. Yep. And of course, they're like, I mean, we know this is not what we're talking about. The good companies that understand the necessary role of technology as the core enabler for the business, they don't view it as a cost center. They view it as the core of their business. That's right. And so um, it's it's a profit center. It is the line of business at its core. So um, that's the client perspective. Yeah, of course. Now, And I would totally well, agree with that. I, I, yeah. I 100%. From the agency perspective, and I, I actually have a lot of friends at agencies. I send a lot of business towards agencies because yeah, when a company course. is, when they tell me that they need help with something, but it's not their core competency, I'm like, don't dilute your own people on that. Give that to a good firm. So now here's the challenge from the agency point of view. They often view you as a mercenary very upfront. They're yeah. like, if you don't want to build it, Accenture will build anything. <laughs> they'll say you know? yes to everything. They will yeah. see, they'll just charge us like crazy, but yep. they're like, you yeah, want to do exactly what I ask. And you know, right. yeah, exactly. So, so from the agency perspective, you know, most of the agencies don't want to just build crap. They want right. to build something that's helpful, that really helps their clients. They're so still it, creatives. I mean, they're, they, they would just be oh, like yeah. the people you're hiring. They're designers, they're developers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of them are really kind of pure form creators. They do this because that's what they want to do. They just they love, love it. the craft. They yeah. love the craft, design, engineering, product. So uh, there's a long history of great product people coming from this environment. Of course. Now, the I always try to tell the agency people, because at least all the ones I meet, they don't want to work like Accenture. No. They want to be a true partner, not yeah. lip service. They want to yep. be a true partner. That's uh, right. And I'm sure that's where you're coming from. And of course, the key as I, I know you know this already, but the key is trust, mm. right? They have to mm-hmm. trust you as a partner because to go from George, just build this damn feature to 
George, can you help us solve this problem? That is a totally different conversation. Yeah, totally different. And by the way, it has a huge impact to the contract itself. Yep. You know, because if you're going to help solve that problem, I don't know anybody can give a useful estimate of what that's going to really be. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, only a few mistakes and you're out of business, right? That's right. If you screw up, uh, <laughs> if something ends up taking three times as long, uh, that is works, a problem. We're expendable in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So the only safe thing to do from the agency point of view typically is look, we'll do, we'll work however you like, but you got to pay us on like uh, time uh, yeah. and people. But yep. That's, of course, tough for the company because they're like, we don't have infinite budget. You know, that <laughs> yes, the theoretical yes. agile show us every week, see if it's good. That's like, no, we need it's to kind of have some clarity on that. So from the client really wants to pay for an outcome mm-hmm. and the agency really wants to deliver an outcome. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to have that relationship without a really strong foundation of trust. And I try to encourage the client and the agency to create a relationship that is a, uh, uh, a retainer style relationship That's so right. that you are their partner long term. And, you know, part of this comes because the clients view this as a project, not a product. Mm-hmm. And so they think, yeah, well, OK, three months, George, we're done. We'll be all happy. It's not how it works, of course. It's, it's a finite game in that way. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head that that's exactly, um, it's exactly the, the advice I give to other agencies, honestly, uh, cause there's a lot of upcoming product agencies. We're going to see more and more of them show up because either they don't like the, um, the, the, you know, the bait and switch that they've experienced inside of the big corporations and they want the, the variety in the work or whatever that might be. And, and so people are starting, starting these shops. We've been at it for 11 years. So we're kind of like, okay, we know. We know it's hard and we know that the first thing you're absolutely right. The first thing is trust. It is our, our number one value. Um, and it's one of our core values is trust. And, but creating trust is, is not easy. Um, no. and, and you've been not, around it, 11 years. So you probably have a set of clients that really have learned they can depend on you for this. That's right. It's not like a, they're not risking their whole career if they give you the latitude to do some work. That's right. That's right. No, that's super helpful. I appreciate you speaking into it. And again, that's a little bit selfish, but um, I, I so was encouraged by your, your ethos or your kind of the way that you think about empowered teams. And of course, I'm trying to do that inside my organization, but to do that as an agency where we're trying to partner with people to say like, there is a possibility that in some way we can, we can be empowered together. Um, and that's, that is, it's going to be more difficult than quite transparently. If you just hired people and spent the time and the, you know, the the effort to, to go ahead and create that culture for yourself, but maybe we can help you to do that for a period of time or for, um, you know, maybe on a particular part of your product, your, your business, your, your product that is, um, that is not core to who you are. And again, that's why most of the work that we do is, you know, creating staffing solutions or recruiting platforms, those types of things that are an element of the business, but maybe not the core driver to the business. Um, so that's, that, that's, that's really good word. Well, Marty, this has been super helpful. And like I said, I could, I could nerd out with you on the, on every, every chapter, every header in this book for, I think an hour or longer, each, each topic, but um, we don't have time for that. So I want to throw it back to you. 
where, where can people learn more about you, um, your organization, your work, the book? Um, where can people find you? Yeah, well, we're very small. There's only six of us. Uh, we're all longtime friends, all of which are head of products. And, and so um, svpg.com, Silicon Valley Product Group.com. Um, we, we publish uh, all articles constantly for free on there. We're trying to sort of give back a bit. Uh, and um, uh, on Twitter, at Kagan, C-A-G-A-N, and um, yeah, LinkedIn, all the normal places, except the not normal. Facebook. I, yeah, I, uh, I'm not much on Facebook anymore myself either. Um, but honestly, if you're not following uh, Marty on uh, Twitter, you have to. Uh, his Your tweets are fantastic, and I think that's where we got connected. So thank you so much for, for joining me today, and um, thank you for writing the books. I know this was a labor of love. Um, and so I appreciate what you're putting out in the world. It really does mean a lot. Well, thanks very much, George. And thanks for inviting me. This episode of People of Product was produced by Larissa McCarty with support from Gabby Caton, Julie Branson, and Alexa Alfonso. Our hosts are George Brooks and Daniel Linhart. People of Product is brought to you by Crema, a digital product agency. We believe that creativity, technology, and culture can help individuals and organizations thrive. Learn more at crema.us.